It has been said so many times, in so many ways, by so many scholars and cuisine authorities as to be a cliché. Eating is as much or more a matter of the mind as it is of the body. Yet if you take this seriously enough to look beyond superficial discussions of the mind-body connection in popular magazines and dieting books, you don't find much readily accessible information about what the cliché really means. Instead, what you see are mainly descriptions of gimmicks and quick fixes aimed at people trying to manage their appetite and anxiety issues. After providing more or less lip service to the importance of mind, read willpower. Most of this material suggests that if you can't a. Chew each mouthful twenty or thirty times, b. Drink three glasses of water before each meal, c. Take four deep breaths between each bite, d. Visualize the roll of fat around your middle or the clumps of cholesterol in your arteries and so forth to control your consumption. There is always the local acupuncturist ready to manipulate your appetite centers or better, the money back if it doesn't work hypnotist. It must be acknowledged, of course, that some of the gimmicks work some of the time for some people. But in any case, why should we bother about the mind-body significance of food? The wide and deep range of social, emotional, and biological implications of our eating behaviors hardly ever come up in daily life. So, why should anyone take the time to examine them? This is not an easy question to answer because the pathways that lead any of us toward food as a subject for serious thought or study vary across an immense spectrum of experience. At the positive end are those who from childhood onward were captivated by the magical joys of eating, magical in the sense that the delicious food treats of their childhood could immediately overwhelm moments of injury or sadness with visceral pleasure. According to recent biographies, cuisine experts such as Julia Child and M.F.K. Fisher who were raised in comfortable upper-middle-class families, probably began this way. Their adult concerns with food might be understood as a search for the keys to the magical kingdom of culinary delights, where recipes are incantations, cooking is alchemy, and efforts to find a great cuisine or restaurant are like quests for a holy grail. At the negative end of the spectrum are those unfortunates for whom food, sometimes from the beginning of childhood, has been a problem, often a threatening source of anxiety. In her text on the psychology of eating and drinking, psychologist A.W. Logue explains that her professional work on the subject may stem from the fact that she had rigid food aversions as far back as she can remember, and that for much of her early childhood, she survived mostly on milk and bread. Gandhi's autobiography, on the other hand, explains that he first became sensitized not only to the personal significance of his eating habits, but also to the social and cultural importance of food when upon his arrival in England as a young law student, he was pressured to abandon his vegetarian diet. Most of us fall somewhere between these extremes, generally accepting the foods of our culture or subculture without much thought. The exception might be during childhood and adolescence, when a novel foreign dish occasionally confronts us as a frightening enigma. A case in point is my own experience as a 12-year-old Boy Scout when I first violated the laws that define kosher foods by tasting ham and bacon, half expecting to be struck down by an Orthodox Jewish thunderbolt, or at least a major stomachache. But I got away clean and went on to become a typically omnivorous teenager, primarily concerned with quantity, not quality. This continued more or less unchanged until I stumbled unwittingly into the profound implications of food while doing research on the Holocaust and, at about the same time, learning the practices of yoga and Zen Buddhist meditation. These were my main professional and personal projects from about age 40 to 50. The former was a scholarly research effort to unravel the historical and psychological factors that made the Holocaust possible, 
The latter was an exploration of unusual, sometimes painful, mental and physical states, carried out under the instruction of Zen master Danen Katagari. Both projects involved years of demanding work and occasional bafflement. They also brought rewarding insights, and always a sense of working toward a deeper grasp of human behavior. I never imagined that the two projects might ultimately converge, and then dissolve, into something so prosaic as food. Yet that's what happened, as I began to see that, beneath the horrors of Holocaust testimony and the dramatic accounts of Zen enlightenments, there was a truth of startling simplicity, namely that, among other things, both point to the body as the inescapable source of our human condition.